Yeah, welcome back to the movie show here on Think Tech. I'm Jay Fidel. It's one o'clock clock on Tuesday uh, with uh, George Kaysen, who is our movie review critic person and who finds these great movies and buries himself in them so he can discuss them in great detail with us. Hi, George. Hi, hi, Jay. How are you? So uh, the movie today, Once Upon a Time in America, um, and I'll tell you what, you know, why I think this is a good choice. Um, it, powerful actors, um, and not only the leads, but the, but the ones uh, who are not the leads, and, and they all made their careers on this movie. This has been around for a while, and a lot of people have seen it many more times than one. It's a story of um, the immigrants in New York and the Lower East Side, and um, it tries to show you how complex their lives were and how some of them went in the wrong direction. Um, how a, a buck meant so much to them to survive. They did things that were illegal. And uh, it's epical in the sense that it covers, uh, I suppose the timeline is led by one actor, Robert De Niro, um, but it covers his whole life. And so we learn about the immigrants who went astray in the Lower East Side. We didn't maybe know them, now we know them better. Um, so George, um, you know, what does this movie tell you? The key point, if you go when you go through the whole movie, has to do with Noodles, David Noodles, Aronson, who's played by um, Robert De Niro. And and you, you know, what you've mentioned before, you have the the pieces are there's like little little pieces here, right? That that are all jumbled together. So you, until you get to the end, it doesn't really make a lot of sense because. Um, that, that's what made this movie is the jumbling of time. Uh, so um, th to get on another aside, Sergio Leone initially had a five hour movie broken into two, two and a half movie segments, right? So it was totally five hours of, sc of the you know, screen, but it was cut down to four little less than four hours for the european version which is the the one that's sort of the time is cut up so you really have to as you said you got to really think it doesn't spoon feed you anything right but then for america whoever was you know, distributing it here chose to reduce it to two hours and 19 minutes and it was a total flop now just that's just an aside but basically what, to get back to what your question was, uh, it, it shows the life of Noodles Aronson and what was the different factors that, that created his life. And at the end, you know, he's, first is a bunch of young kids, you know, doing petty crime. That was around 1920. Then he's put into jail because there was a fight and he stabbed one of the syndicate, Bugsy, Bugsy's, um, some Irish guy, Bugsy's uh, killed him and then stabbed the cop. So they put him in jail for 12 years and he comes out in 1932. And the, uh, his other three friends have already, you know, because of prohibition, they set up a speakeasy, they made a lot of money. So he gets back in with them, right, in 1932-33. But then Max, who was sort of like co-leader with him, you know, and has taken that's over. James Woods. 
That's James true. Woods. No, he knows how to play a mean character. He is he is meaner than Noodles by far. Oh yeah, he's very mean, and and he plays that role very well, right? And Max Max Maximilian or Max um, Berkowitz or something. That was his name, right? And so basically, he wants to go and rob the Federal Reserve Bank to make the big heist because prohibition is ending. And their business, their speakeasy, which was one of the best speakeasies in New York, is going to be put out of business. But noodles. Uh, a, speakeasy, a speakeasy be kind of behind a, a kosher deli. I love it. Yeah, that's where it was. So, so bottom, <laughs> bottom line is, is um, you know, noodles thinks that this is nuts. He thinks that they're all going to get themselves killed or something. He thinks it's too, too dangerous a heist. So he could. He's talking to uh, Max's girlfriend, and the two of them decide that Max is nuts and he to do this. So he, they engineer something where they're going to get them the, uh, the the rest of them arrested, so that they don't do this to save them to save their lives, right? So 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 basically, he calls the police and he uh, stooges, stools, you know, stool pigeon. He tells on them, right? So they, then there's going to then they were going to do a liquor heist of some kind, right? So do a liquor heist, and it seems well what they're showing is that during the liquor heist the police kill all three of them and Noodles is not with them, so so um, they show the three of them dead there, right? And that's what you're led to believe that all three died. Then because it it gets out in the mob that that Noodles has stool that you know has squealed on them right to get them arrested the other members of the mob come and they want to you know do away with noodles so they can't find noodles so his girlfriend who was that not the woman he really loved we'll talk about that but his girlfriend at the time who was a prostitute she gets shot because these guys come to his place they can't find him she says she doesn't know where he is so they kill her right so he decides that at knowing that and then they go to Mo, who, who runs the kosher deli, right? Who's friends with them, right? And they beat him up and they make a bloody mess of him, but they don't kill him, you know, but really torture him, right? So literally, um, uh, Noodles decides he's got to get out of town. He goes to the railroad station and the guy tells where to, and he says, can't decide right away. And so the, the guy at the rail, rail station says, Buffalo? And he says, yeah, Buffalo. So he, go, he, he disappears for 35 years. And then after they, it shows that after 35 years, his rabbi sends him a letter about where his parents were buried, that they're going to be put, shutting down the cemetery. They're going to be building something there. They're going to be moving the graves to another cemetery. So he knows that even though he's living under an assumed name, somebody knows where he is, found him. So he knows he's better. He's damn well better come back and find out what's going on because, you know, that they're out to maybe they're out to kill him. So he comes back to New York City, right? And then he gets an invitation, right? This, I'm just tell me if I'm going on to too much, Jay. Just he gets an invitation to this estate on the North Shore of Long Island. It's beautiful, I mean, gorgeous house, right? From this guy Christopher Bailey, who is the Secretary of Commerce of the United States, big, big job, right? So he goes because he's interested, you know, and, and he's interested to see who's there, right? So in the meantime, 
the woman he really loved was Deborah Jelly, right? From the, from the ghetto, and she was beautiful, and she was able to. She is Elizabeth McGovern. Right. Also, she, uh, she was fabulous in this movie. Uh, this Elizabeth McGovern and also Connolly. There was two different the, the young uh, Deborah and the older Deborah. But Elizabeth uh, McGovern played the older Deborah. Very beautiful woman. So, so both of them are beautiful because they're playing the same role, young and old. So bottom line is he had gone to visit her and she sort of squealed a little bit that she's married to some guy, you know, and they, they've got a son. And then he sees the son, right? And the son is like a dead ringer for Max. So she sort of doesn't make sense, right? This guy looks like Max. So he doesn't understand completely. Then he goes to the, to the estate, right? And all these famous people there all wealthy, you know, great Gatsby kind of thing, if you're if, if familiar with that novel, right? So Christopher Bailey calls Noodles into his private suite. Well, this, this doesn't make sense. Of this. And then you see the face of Christopher Bailey and you know immediately that's Max. But Noodles just can't believe this because he'd, oh, he'd seen the three, what, 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 he was sitting behind in a car like 30, 40 or 50 feet away. And he saw all three of them dead, you know, except Max's was all burnt. The face was all burnt. So bottom line is this is Max and Max gives him a gun and says, I want you to shoot me, kill me because Max is, Christopher Bailey is under investigation for big crimes, you know, and he's, I mean, he's literally a public figure. He's the Secretary of Commerce, right? So he's, because I stole your life away, Noodles, right? I, and, and he basically played this game with the police, who corrupt police, to make him, you know, Max living under an assumed name, Christopher Bailey, right? And then rose in society, became very wealthy, and then became Secretary of Commerce. So Noodles is really an honorable guy. He's, I'm not going to kill First, he doesn't believe, even though he sees the face, he doesn't believe this is Max, right? So he's, I'm not going to kill you, right? So Max says, please do, please do, please do. So the way the movie ends, I mean, not to jump ahead, right, is that uh, Noodles leaves the state, right? Goes out a, 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 a quiet, at the back, there's a secret en exit, right? And then right be and he's walking out, and in front of the estate entrance, the big gates, is this Mack truck. And the Mack truck sitting there. It's a garbage there, truck. Garbage truck, right? Sitting there. Say, what the, you know, to, to me, what, what the hell is this? And then they turn the lights on and off, and then a figure comes out of the estate. And you don't know if that's if that's Max or Christopher Bailey or who it is, right? And then they show the back of the garbage truck. They don't show Max. <laughs> this figure is standing there, right. and the truck starts and moves between Robert De Niro and that figure. And um, it, it passes by, and after it's passed by, the figure is gone, right. presumably in the garbage truck. And exactly. the last shot there is the garbage truck is processing the garbage yeah. with these big grinding wheels in the back. Yeah. He jumped in. That's the implication. That was his suicide. He jumped that's, in the garbage truck. That's the implication. But some of the reviews say that that's not necessary. We don't, we, we're not, and this is how Leone, they leave its question, there's a question. Now, the other thing in my mind, these other two, Cockeye and Patsy, the other two guys, uh, 
Patsy Goldberg, and Kakai Stein, you know, these other two guys, right? When you saw them with uh, supposedly dead, right? But we really don't know if, if Max was able to stage his death, maybe they staged all three deaths. You're not really sure because you saw their face, but, but, you know, a little bit of, seemed like they were bloody, but you don't know, that could have been not real blood. So the thing is, you never know whether the other two, whatever happened to the other two. And, and there is a, in Riverdale, they were all moved, uh, the bodies were moved to a, f a famous uh, cemetery, fa a rich cemetery, wealthy cemetery in Riverdale up in the Bronx. And you see, uh, at, at one point, when, when Noodles goes back, David Noodles goes back, he goes to that mausoleum up in, up in um, Riverdale and you, he opens the door and there's the, you know, it shows the, the, where the three are buried, right? With their names, 1905, 1907 to 1933. And then uh, Cockeye used to play this little flute or something. And they have his song that he, fav he his favorite song that he loved, right? That, um, that they, so there's a lot of questions, but bottom line here is, it's all broken up, so it doesn't really come together at the oh, end. Oh, but you brought it together for us. That's well, great, I, George. Yeah, you you yeah. really rendered it, and, and uh, that really makes it uh, a better a better discussion here today. Let me let me come up with some some conclusions on this. Number one is that flute, that music, it's haunting, and it's throughout this long movie, and it it holds the movie together. It holds the movie when they were young. It holds the movie when they were old. It holds the movie, you know, and makes them uh, human. It's a, it's a, a powerful, powerful song. If, the, if there's one thing I would say for myself that I like best about the whole movie was the music, believe it or not. Um, the other thing I want to mention is that just looking at the uh, Google um, you know, report on this, you got Robert uh, De Niro, you got uh, James Woods, you got Elizabeth McGovern, J Jennifer Connelly. Yeah, she was the young one. You got Tuesday Weld. You got Joe Pesci, Treat Williams. All these are familiar. Burt Young. I don't remember the name, but you remember the face. Uh, William Forsyth. He's the adult who has the problem with his eye. Remember the gangster with the eye. James Hayden, Danny uh, Aiello, Dan Danny Aiello, and a woman by the name of Darlene Flugel. Those are the ones that are reported in the, in the Google report. But you can see how many of these people got to be famous in gangster movies later on. This was 1984. That, that's what, did I get it right? 40 years ago. This movie was made almost 40 years ago. And, and the truth is that most of the cast of this movie got to be famous as a result of this movie. That's how good the movie was. That's how well it was seen by Hollywood. And ultimately, after they got over the length problem, um, you know, the reviewers and, you know, the industry and the public. It is really a blockbuster movie. It is a movie to remember for your whole life. And as I was saying before, you know, it, this is very interesting because people who, um, you know, came as immigrants, uh, reminds me of Gangs of New York. Um, remember that movie? That was also the fabulous movie about New York in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, also an epical movie. Um, the, you know, these, these movies portray uh, uh, a piece of American history that your parents won't tell you about. Your parents, if they were related to the people in this movie, they wouldn't tell you. 
you know, the, the, this history dies with the, you know, with the, with the gangsters. Um, and, you know, my, my family would never tell me things like this. They buried it. In fact, uh, you know, a lot of American history buried it. But we have a little vignette here of how it was, um, the pressure of living in the ghetto, the, the pressure of trying to make a buck, the lack of options, the lack of education, the lack of anybody who gave a rip about you. A lot of these people were effectively orphans. Their parents were in terrible shape um, and they had no choices but to be little street gangsters. And the remarkable thing about the murder that he went to jail for 12 years was, was a murder of a, of a kid around eight years old. And he was like 11 or 12. I mean, that, that's, that was their society. That was their world. They were already in crime at that age, already in gangs, ready to kill people. And of course, it got much worse, you know, as prohibition came, as post-prohibition came, um, you know, the gangsters got worse, they got more murderous, more meaner, and so forth. And you saw these transitions, didn't you? You saw the dynamics, the evolution of this group of people, while everybody else was going straight, getting a job, you know, raising kids, what have you, these guys were off on the fringe, and they had a life that was not covered in our you know, popular art, literature, except for a movie like this. This is different than any gangster movie I've ever seen because it was real. These people were real and they were, you know, they could be your uncles, <laughs> your grandfather. They could very well be related to you. You would never know. <clears throat> and so the story of Robert De Niro, you know, he could have been a brain surgeon. He was a really smart guy. I'm not commenting on the James Woods character. What was that? What was his name again? Uh, Max uh, Million. Max Max uh, Berkowitz. Yeah. But uh, you know, the movie is remarkable in the sense that these people could have been great. They could have been contenders, but they they took the wrong route. They got involved with the wrong people even earlier on. It was a joke when they were kids, but it wasn't a joke later. The other thing I want to mention to you for your interest and comment is um, if there's one scene in the movie that just totally knocked my socks off, it's this unrequited, incomplete love affair between Robert De Niro and Elizabeth McGovern. <clears throat> she was a real character. She was going to do the right thing. She was going to be an actress, remember? And she was an actress later, and he could never reconnect her you know, later on in the movie, but there was one scene, it's a remarkable scene, where he wants to uh, bridge the gap with her. So he takes her out to dinner. He takes her to a huge hotel somewhere on the Jersey Shore, and he hires the whole place in this big, huge ballroom, and there's nobody in it, but, you know, a, a dozen waiters, maybe 20 waiters, and, and he and Elizabeth McGovern, and they're all alone. And it's like, you know, 50, 100 tables in there. And he says to her, which table would you like to eat? <laughs> he, he rented all the tables, every table. <laughs> you know, it was, it was an expression of romance by a guy who didn't know too much about romance. <laughs> but he, he is telling you how much he cared for her and how much she cared for him. But they couldn't, they had gone on separate paths and they could never really get together and it, it ended badly for them. Yeah, she told him even early on that 
you know, I love you, but you'll always be a punk and I'm going to become a famous actress. In other words, oil and water won't mix. And that's basically, and until uh, Max, Maximilian, AKA Christopher Bailey became, then she married him because he was on that level, you know, and she, you know, I don't think she even, well, she probably, I wonder if she even knew that that was Max, you know, I guess she did, but I'm not sure. But you know, that's when she met, that's who she married and that's who she had the child with. So, yeah. So it ended badly, badly because he wasn't a nice person and uh, De Niro had at least the, you know, the possibility of being a nice person. And, and she was uh, classy. She's a classy woman in a world which had very little class. She was trying to make, you know, class for herself, trying to have a, a decent life. She was the only one, I'm looking at the cast of characters, um, you know, a lot of them really turned out to be bums. Um, maybe that's what made them so famous. The characters, I mean, what made them so famous in the, uh, you know, in the, in the gangster genre uh, in all the years that have followed 1984, because they played really good gangsters. And gangsters have a dynamic. You know, I think we learned that, didn't we? You know, as a kid, you're one kind of gangster, but then you get older and you get in more trouble, you're another kind of gangster. And it gets worse. And, and then you, you, you can't turn back. You can't make good on it anymore. One, one other thing, George, uh, from a point of view of American history, I found their coverage of the prohibition era, very, you mentioned it, very, very, very interesting. In fact, I wanna get a history professor on the show here to talk about what prohibition was really, what it meant to the country, how it happened, um, you know, why Congress did that. Well, it was more than Congress. This was an amendment to the constitution, my goodness, uh, and why it came apart. Um, but what, you know, what are your thoughts about that? How did that, that play in the movie? It seemed to be a great way to make money. Well, from what I remember, it was, you know, there, there, was, there was the movement against alcohol was very strong among some religious groups, but it was never enforceable. So they realized by the time 30, 32 rolled around and FDR came in, that it was just generating a lot of crime. So they decided to, to scrap it, you know? It was like, you know, um, it, it just wasn't enforceable. So bottom line is, but it was, it was religious groups that were anti-alcohol, you know, that were lobbying for this. You know, in 1920, I'm trying to think, sort of conservative, who was that, Harding and then Coolidge, you know? So when FDR came in, he faced up to this and that, that's when the thing was just pulled, you know? So, um, yeah, so that's just only, the only recollection I have about the prohibition. Well, just hearing you recall, it just, it strikes me that, um, that the forces that wanted to terminate, repeal, uh, you know, prohibition, which that required a big legal effort also, an amendment again, um, they, they were really striking out against organized crime because organized crime grew by leaps and bounds. Uh, Al Capone and so many others uh, in the 20s uh, that I think it was troubling people. And it's not only they made, you know, they realized they made a mistake about prohibition in terms of the way the country worked, quality of life and all. Uh, they made a mistake because it engendered mob, mob rule and mob violence. And these guys, uh, Aronson and Berkowitz, uh, 
you know, they were they were making, I think they were making, a, you know, the bulk of their money during prohibition doing the speakeasy behind the deli. Um, and it was, my gosh, it was a really successful speakeasy. I mean, we, we, we see speakeasies in retrospect as dark and dingy in a basement somewhere. No, no, no. This was a fabulous speakeasy. People came with, with fabulous clothes and they had music and they danced. It was a, it was a party. And it was more than the alcohol, though that was central, that was the, the magnet. But when they came to a speakeasy, assuming the police had been paid off, um, they had a whale of a good time. All levels of society would come to speakeasies. And there was, you know, there's something really hypocritical about that. These are, you know, politicians, officials, what have you, successful businessmen all at the speakeasy. <laughs> And there was a there was a uh, engagement with the mob there, and so the mob knew them, and they knew the mob it was a great place to to make corrupt connections, don't you think? <laughs> Probably that's how Max, uh, A.K.A. Christopher, rose to become, you know, Secretary of Commerce. I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. Connections, connections he made at the speakeasy. Yeah. 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 Well, for me, and I like your thoughts about how this affects you, because I know you do make those connections like I do. I, you know, it was hard to get a job back in the 20s and 30s and 40s as an immigrant family. Um, you know, until after World War II, you know, the economy of this country did not favor immigrants. And, you know, you, know, you lived in a, in a terrible railroad flat in a ghetto. Um, there was violence all around you. Um, you, you stuck close to family if you had a family, because uh, they would hopefully take care of you when you went, you know, into trouble. <clears throat> um, you know, it, the, the getting a business was a big deal. And a lot of the businesses you saw, for example, down on uh, Orchard Street in Manhattan, Lower East Side, uh, they, were, they were at the very edge. They were failing every day. They were very hard to make a living, and you had to be sharp as a tack in order to make a living there. Um, and they, they clung very close to religion. There was a certain amount of Jewishness in this, in this movie, not much, but some. And um, th that's why I thought the movie was so interesting that it, it, it told you that. These guys weren't gangsters by choice, not really. The circumstances around them forced them into it. And they become, they become marginalized in the legitimate people who go forward and get legitimate jobs and have real families and kids and education and you know some success in the world. These are the guys who couldn't make it that way. And it tells you how, how smart they were, how aggressive they were, but they had something clicked wrong in their brain and they went off into a tangent. Um, and I, I never had seen that, that particular image, that view of the way the family members that nobody will tell you about <laughs> how they lived. But this is the, the forgotten chapter in the Lower East Side. <laughs> yeah. Because without a high school, they hadn't finished high school. So, you know, what choices did they have? You know, to, I mean, I don't know the New York uh, City schools, the colleges, you know, if they were, I mean, I, I don't know, were they free or, you know, uh, you're more familiar with the New York City college. Well, they were, they were cheap. 
and um, and um, you know a lot of really poor people went to them, but you had to have enough money to live. And here's the difference: <clears throat> if you watch this movie, you can see how these guys became fascinated with money, the mob, the, the life on the street, the gangster way of living. Um, showed them how to get money, lots of money, more money than they, they could have, you know, gotten working at menial jobs uh, or selling neckties, you know, from a push cart. Um, this was this was real money, and they could walk around in a fancy suit at the age of ten, and be a big a big a big guy on the street at the age of ten with a tie and golden jewelry and all this stuff at the age of ten. And, you know, they became enamored with that, they habituated to it, and it led them down the path. And that's the way they were recruited into more serious mobs. I will give you lots of money. You won't, you won't, um, you know, be uh, marginal anymore, like the other people you know who are struggling their way through school. I'm sure that's part of it. It was the fork in the road. That was their only choice coming from Bowie's side. And one of them, I think it was the young guy who was playing noodles said, my, I thought my mom is praying and my, no, my mom is crying and my dad is praying in their little flat, you know? And, you know, like you said, you know, often there was this, you know, immigrant families coming, you know, uh, living in basic poverty. You know, Lower East Side was, you know, poor, poor neighborhood. So what yeah. were the options? For, what did these kids, what, what, the, what are the options these kids had? You know, that was the sadness of this whole thing. But I mean, to me, Noodles was the, he was Pono. I mean, he was caring for, for Max, you know, that Max wasn't going to get himself killed. And then Max was only looking out for himself, you know. And so this. Oh, I think Max was kind of a psychopath. Yeah, you know, he, stole, he had pathologies. Yeah, he stole um, um, Noodles's David Noodles's life away from him. Stole his girl. Stole everything. And Noodles, I don't know. They never showed when he lived in Buffalo how he survived, how he lived. Did he have a menial job? You know, they they leave things. There's certain things that, as you said, you liked that never answered. Certain questions never answered. You know, it's mm -hmm. you, you got to think it through and think to yourself how, how you know how these questions were answered. Well, the, well, the filmmaker was he didn't feel that was really important. What was important was the community of gangsters, mm -hmm. the community of these people who had known each other from the time they were in their you know five or six or, or seven years old, and he was tracking on their taking snapshots, connecting the dots of their whole lives. And since Robert De Niro noodles was in, what you say, Buffalo for all that time. It wasn't relevant. He had hit himself. He was in his self-imposed exile. And it didn't matter to the community of people that the filmmaker was tracking. Speaking of which, the filmmaker is Italian. And a lot of the collaborators on this film are Italian. So you have an interesting juncture between um, Max, Jewish, Noodles, Jewish, and I don't know, maybe some of the others were, Elizabeth McGovern was Jewish. Um, maybe some of the others too, but but then you had the Italians, and the story is written by an Italian. So it's the merger of of the ghetto of of the you know the uh, the immigrant groups in the ghetto, and you get to see them engage with each other 
and come together. There's no discussion of it really. It just happens. But the movie, you know, it's uh, it's inextricably intertwined with the way these people operate. Um, and that's also interesting because I think it's a true fact that the Jewish gangsters, they, they were good at what they did. And the Italian gangsters, they were good at what they did. And there was a natural kind of, you know, consolidation, a relationship. I think that the way it jumps around that you see her, Eve, his girlfriend getting shot and Mo getting beaten up and you really don't understand so that they they drawn you in and you start questioning and start thinking of what really is going on here that that's what made the longer version so famous and so powerful and which made the shorter version with the shorter version what not only did they cut it down to two hours and 19 minutes they made it sequential so it would be like a time frames each of the time frames from the beginning to the end and it lost something there. So I think it's that it's that keeping you at the edge of your seat that you want to know more, you know, it's filling in piece by piece. I think that's what made the movie so powerful. I mean, because it keeps jumping back and forth. It'll, it'll give you a scene at a certain period of time and then they jump to another period. So I think that's what, to me, that was what made the movie so powerful and so kept my interest for four hours. It's yeah. almost four hours. Yeah, the other thing too, it's just along the same line is that it was full of surprises. These characters uh, were capable of murder. They did do murder. That was part of their operation. The brutal, immediate, thoughtless murder. Um, and it was murder for hire or murder on command. And you know, you'd see a, a murder taking place without feeling. So here's a person like De Niro, you know, who, who portrayed a character who was smart who had a certain level of morality and feeling. He was, he, he cared about some things. But then when he was instructed to do dirty deeds, he did them without hesitation. And that surprised you. It surprised you how the characters jumped all over the place to do things you would not expect. And maybe that's an accurate portrayal of life itself. We all do things that people don't expect and that we don't expect. Circumstances just make us do those things. So on a scale of five, George, what would you give it? About a five, I think a five. It's, it's a good movie. It's a good movie, keeps your interest. Um, a little long, you know, four hours. <laughs> Took a long time to watch it, but it's a good movie. I mean, I, I, mean, I would suggest anybody, uh, you know, you, you can even get it online for free. I watched it for free. There were options at $3.99 or free, and I found a free one. Which so, was this, Amazon or uh, Netflix? Amazon isn't carrying it. Netflix has it, but then I found it. Um, I forgot the, the name. It was it was a because it's an old movie, so I found a free version. You know. Yeah. So so yeah, but well, it's a, one of those movies that'll last forever. Yeah. I will never tire of this movie. I've seen it like three, four times already, and um, I I can't resist it when I see it playing. I have to go spend my four hours. I have to see those characters and and figure what makes them tick. I have to figure how they fit into prohibition, into the depression, into the gangster life, and into the history of America. Yeah, we need to have movies like this. I think they found a copy of the five hour initial 
before it was even cut the first time. So I know that you wanted to review the, the actual version that was filmed. I mean, that was shown, right? But there is a five-hour version that may fill in some of those gaps. So let me eventually take a look at that five-hour version. I think it was just recently discovered in Italy. Mm -hmm. So what's uh, what homework? What homework are we going to give to our viewers for the next couple of shows, George? You want to tell them about it so they can go watch the movies and and bear with us? Yeah, I bet. I guess that the thing is, you know, to if you've watched the movie already, right? then you understand a little bit more about what we're discussing, you know, than if, if, if they haven't seen the movie, then it's, it's only our impressions, you know. So it's, it's important to, to actually take a look at that movie and, uh, you know, and bottom line, you know, to get a better understanding of what we're So what movies should they be watching? What's the homework? I think you, the ones you have on your docket, is Berlin, I Love You. And then the other one was... Official Secrets. Official Secrets, right. So those are the two that, that you're, you've got on the next, to be the next two, yeah. Yeah, they're both uh, European and, and really very good. Um, the Berlin movie is um, it's a, a series of stories about Berlin love stories and the like try to give you the character of modern day Berlin, Berlin through a number of different um, vignettes. And um, the other one, Official Secrets, is one of the most interesting movies I have seen. It's quite remarkable. It's an English movie. It's about uh, a woman who intentionally violates the Official Secrets Act. Um, which was, uh, you know, enacted in uh, 1989, and she violated it in connection with certain diplomatic maneuvers that were happening between the U.S. and uh, Tony Blair um, uh, over the uh, decision to attack Iraq in uh, 2004. So um, that's a true, a totally true story, official acts, official uh, secrets. And uh, that'll be really interesting. That's two shows from now. Well, thank you, George. I think this is a, a really a great endeavor of ours and I appreciate you looking at the movies and sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you, Jay. Aloha. <laughs>